This is the Unraveled Podcast with host Caleb Aring and Nicole Richards. Join us as we unravel a new case every season. You are listening to Season 1, The Nightmare in Ada. I'm Caleb Aring. I'm Nicole Richards. And you're listening to Season 1 of Unraveled. When we left off last week, we were talking about how Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot were finally accused in the murder of Denise Haraway. And I use the term murder loosely because there's no proof so far that she's dead, only that she has disappeared. So today we're going to talk about what happened after those charges were filed. So I want to take a few minutes first to uh, talk about a little bit of legal stuff and try to talk about it in a way that's understandable and not confusing. So before a defendant goes on trial or has a hearing, they have what's called a preliminary hearing. And that is very similar to what it sounds like. It is a different trial, a different hearing that happens before the real one. So traditionally, we think of someone having their trial, and we think of what we've seen in Law and Order, right? There's a jury of your peers, nine people who listen to all the evidence while the lawyers ask questions, and then those nine people decide. But the preliminary hearing happens before that. And in the preliminary hearing, the judge is deciding whether or not there's even enough evidence to have the trial, that trial that we're all familiar with, the one where you have a jury of your peers making a decision. And in a trial, there's something called a burden of proof. And the burden of proof is like a scale of how strongly you have to prove what you're showing. And I think what most people are familiar with is the burden of proof that is beyond a reasonable doubt. So in a criminal trial, you have to show that the person who's being accused is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, And that's a very high burden of proof. And a lot of people define that as um, being something that's extremely likely or that it's unlikely that any other scenario would be true. Now, in the preliminary hearing, that burden of proof is much lower. So if we were talking about a scale of 1 to 10, where 1 means I'm sure that this person isn't guilty, and 10 means I watched this person do it, I know 100% that he is guilty, in a hearing, in a regular trial, that scale, you would probably be somewhere around a 9, proving it beyond a reasonable doubt. And in the preliminary hearing, you'd probably be closer to maybe a three or a four. In a preliminary hearing, you just have to show that there's probable cause that the person who is being accused did in fact commit the crime. So you need just enough evidence to justify a belief that number one, a crime actually occurred. And number two, the person who's being accused, in this case, Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot, are in fact the people who committed that crime. So I'm going to assume that you've been listening to all the previous episodes in this podcast. And if you have been, then one of the things that you might be thinking is, do they have enough evidence to even prove that a crime has occurred. Denise has disappeared, but no one has found a body. No one has found the site where she was taken to after she disappeared from McAnally's. So is there enough proof to even justify saying that she's been murdered? And there is, for some people, a belief that there has to be a body to prove that a murder has occurred. And that's not true. At this point, um, in 1984, there had been very, very, very few cases where anyone had even been accused of murder without there being a body. In fact, at the time that Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot had their preliminary hearing, there were only two notable cases where someone had been charged 
without a body being present. And in one of those cases, even though they didn't have a body, they had some of the bones of the person who had uh, been murdered. And in the other case, they had found some blood where they suspected that a murder had taken place. So although they didn't have a body, they did have some minimum level of evidence to show that a murder had occurred. Here in this case so far, there's no body, there are no bones, there's no blood, there's, there isn't even a place where someone can point to and say that the crime has occurred. So needless to say, Bill Peterson, the district attorney, the person who whose job it is to prove that a crime has occurred and to prove that Tommy and Carl are the ones who committed the crime, has a pretty tall task in front of him at this preliminary hearing. Yeah, I think that's the thing that feels really daunting going into this preliminary hearing is, again, we have charges that are these hefty, hefty charges. We have robbery with a dangerous weapon, kidnapping, rape in the first degree, murder in the first degree. This is a case that's carrying the death penalty. Um, You have two individuals that are in custody, and you do have these cases before, but I think what you had said is the thing that I noticed that was different, that yes, there were these two cases on the books that was saying we can move forward without a body, that all we have to do is prove that we believe they were involved. But in both of those cases, there was some string of physical evidence. There was this blood and there were these bone pieces. Where in this case, we have absolutely nothing. We have no weapon, no no blood, no body, nothing. And I think that's what's so surprising moving moving forward is that they are going into this preliminary hearing with the intention of getting a trial, um, and that the district attorney's office is going forward even without that bit of evidence. Absolutely. And the other big thing that is at stake with this preliminary hearing is that in Oklahoma at this time, and I believe this is still the case, and in a lot of other states as well, you cannot show a confession of the uh, that the defendant made unless there is some corroborating evidence to show that that confession is in fact true or that at least part of it is true. And, you know, we've actually spent about three episodes on, you know, the confessions and looking at them and corroborating evidence and and picking apart the things that it says happened in the confession. Um, And so far we've come up pretty short trying to find corroborating evidence. So the other major thing that Bill Peterson, the district attorney, is facing in these preliminary hearings, in this preliminary hearing, is trying to prove not only that a crime committed, that Carl and Tommy committed the crime, but also that there's some sort of corroboration that would allow him to play those confessions for a jury if he, in fact, gets to move forward and go to trial. Yeah, and what I have seen of Don Wyatt, who was Tommy Ward's attorney at this time, is that obviously he, as well as Carl Fontenot's attorney, is fighting to not have these tapes played in court. And that there is this belief that there is a chance they won't be played in court. Because the state has this, again, this really big job in front of them of being able to, they have to prove that a crime has been committed and that the defendants are leaked to this crime. And really the only thing they have at this point, the link that they're using are the witnesses at McAnally's and JP's. And that, as we had seen in earlier episodes, and we've talked about it in earlier episodes, is a very, very weak link. And so I think moving forward into the preliminary hearing, as we're going to get into talking about Don Wyatt, as well as Carl Fontenot's attorney, are in this position of thinking there's a good chance these tapes aren't actually even going to be able to be used. And if we can't use the tapes, then the, the trial is not going to happen. Yeah, and well, just a good chance that the trial won't happen because they won't even be able to prove that a crime was committed. Yeah. I mean, going forward, it, it seems that that's where we're headed. But as we start to get into the preliminary hearing, again, full of surprises. So I think that what we could do that might be the most useful is just kind of run through this preliminary hearing with our listeners, go through each of the witnesses that got put on, maybe not go into too much detail on ones that were less significant, but give our listeners an idea of what 
evidence the judge had in front of him to decide whether or not these charges could go forward and could go on to a trial. All right, so let's get started. This preliminary hearing happened January 7th, 1985. That's a Monday. That's the first day of the preliminary hearing. District Attorney Bill Peterson had the opportunity to start calling witnesses, and he called quite a few. But first, let's just set the scene of exactly who is in the courtroom for this preliminary hearing. Because we have Peterson, who's at the prosecution table, along with Dennis Smith. And then over at our defense table, we have both Carl Fontado and Tommy Ward. We have Don Wyatt and his associate, Mike Adicott, who are representing Tommy Ward. George Butner is the public defender who is representing Carl Fontenot. And then we have Judge Miller. Judge Miller right now is going to preside over the preliminary hearing. And he won't just go over the trial, but if he sees that there's enough evidence for the case to go to trial, then another judge will step in. But right now we have Judge Miller. Okay, and so like I said, Bill Peterson, he gets to start with calling witnesses, and he calls his witnesses in chronological order, trying to call them in the order of uh, when the whatever they have to testify about happened. So they don't really go in any order of like significance um, or most important or least important, but just when they fall into place. So what you mean is that they are being called up onto the witness stand in the order that the events happened from the time that Denise went missing. From that moment on, or even before then. Even before then. So the very first witness that he calls is a neighbor of Tommy Ward's, um, who is simply called to testify to the fact that he sometimes saw Tommy in a gray pickup truck. Um, and so we, we've talked a lot about the significance of Odell Titsworth not um, being a part of the story because he was the one who um, had access to a pickup truck. So this is just kind of to show, well, maybe Tommy could have had access to the pickup truck. So he's trying to lay that foundation very quick that the big things that are in question, one of which is this truck, is here we have a witness that sometimes saw Tommy in a gray pickup truck. Exactly. Okay. And then after that, he called another four witnesses who all had pretty much the same purpose, um, and they, uh, they didn't have a very big part in the hearing, but these four witnesses were called to prove two specific things. These were... People who Tommy knew, um, you know, kids that he kind of ran around with. And and by kids, I mean, you know, early 20s, probably. And so they were called to show, number one, that Tommy had a lock blade knife in his possession, like the one that was talked about in the confession tape. And then number two, that he had long hair... Uh, but that he had cut it right around the time that Denise disappeared. Because if you'll recall, one significant thing from the sketches that Karen Wise had uh, sat and, and had made was that the person who had a strong resemblance to Tommy had long hair, but Tommy had short hair. Um, so with these witnesses, that's what Bill Peterson was trying to show. And... Even though one of them testified that Tommy had a lock blade knife, it also came out that the time at which he'd seen this knife with Tommy was in 1982. Um, so probably at least two years, a year to two years before Denise's disappearance. Now that doesn't mean he didn't have it later, but it just makes it somewhat less likely. Exactly. And when I was reading about these four witnesses coming up, I could see that what was trying to happen was they were trying to connect him now to having this weapon and connecting him to also looking like the individual in the sketch. And it seems that under cross-examination, that kind of fell apart pretty quickly because, like you had mentioned, he had shown him this knife at a party and that had happened in 1982. And 
and the individual who said he had seen Tommy change his hair, it eventually came out that he had actually not seen Tommy for months after that April 28th. So it's impossible to know when he had cut his hair. Well, it actually came out he hadn't seen him for at least about four months before Denise disappeared and about four months after Denise disappeared. So he really would have no idea what Tommy's hair looked like at the time of the disappearance or right after the disappearance. So pretty quickly, these individuals are not necessarily the most reliable witnesses we have yet. Absolutely. And then the next two witnesses that are called are people who knew Denise, and they're called as character witnesses. And the reason that Bill Peterson is calling character witnesses about Denise is to try and prove that she is not the type of person who would just run away. Because if you can prove that she's not the type of person to run away, then maybe the logical conclusion is something happened to her. Because that's the big question, right? With no evidence of any sort of of her remains and not any idea where she is, the question still lingers. Is like, And that there's no forced removal of her from the store because we know that from the crime scene and we also have a person who saw her leaving very quietly not real big blowout leaving the store is the question still lingers is did she just leave on her own exactly exactly and so these next two witnesses we have denise's faculty advisor because if you recall in the first episode we gave some background on denise and she was in school she was a student teacher Um, And so one was her faculty advisor and one was uh, someone who was a student teacher with Denise. And both of them testified, um, you know, that Denise was a sweet person, that she was not the type of person who would just get up and run away, that she, you know, was focused on her life, which, which makes a lot of sense. Both of these people were associated with her in her professional realm, in the realm of of her career and where she was trying to go. So I think they would have a good idea of, you know, the fact that she was really dedicated to pursuing her career and that it wouldn't make any sense for her to leave all of that behind. Um, And another interesting thing, the woman who Denise was a student teacher with who testified her name is Donna and Donna actually spoke to Denise about two hours before Denise disappeared and Donna says that at that point two hours before the disappearance everything seemed to be absolutely fine so that would also number one lead us to believe that Denise didn't just up and leave because maybe she would have seemed a little bit stranger on the phone if she was getting ready to leave her whole life behind. And also number two, that at that point, two hours before she disappeared, that there wasn't necessarily someone in her presence who she was afraid of. Um, You know, but the one thing that these two things, even if we say, you know, all of this seems right and we're going to take that leap and say, We don't think she ran away. It doesn't seem like she's the type of person who would do that. It still doesn't prove that she's dead. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest part is that you can talk forever about how somebody didn't just take off. But again, I think it really, um, it feels like such a leap for me into going from, okay, she was a solid individual who loved her life and wouldn't have run off to she's dead. That's a huge leap. And I I suppose, you know, I I talked at the beginning of this episode a little about the difference in the standard of proof, and the the standard of proof is much lower for a preliminary hearing. So I guess if our standard is a scale of 1 to 10 and we're down around a 3 and a 4, that I could make that leap maybe for the purposes of this preliminary hearing. But definitely, if they still don't have a body or a crime scene or something by the time that we... Uh, get to an actual hearing, this would be It doesn't huge. feel like this is going to hold up. But I, I would say for the purpose of the of the preliminary hearing, that seems okay. to be, you know, maybe enough. Um, so next, next, Bill Peterson calls Jeanette Weldon, and Jeanette is Denise's sister. And the main thing that Jeanette was asked about was 
what Denise had been wearing that day. Now, to be clear, she didn't see Denise that day. She didn't know what Denise was wearing. So we have a little bit of the transcript from what was said. So Nicole and I will read to you just that part about what was read about the clothing. Um, and I will play the part of Bill Peterson and Nicole will play the part of Jeanette Weldon. Question. Do you recall giving Donna as a gift a blouse? Answer. Yes, I do. Question. Okay. And would you describe that blouse to the court, please? Answer. Well, it had a white lace collar and it was light lavender and it had little blue flowers on it and it was buttoned up the front and it was pretty worn because it was a shirt I had that I gave to her. It was pretty old. It was almost white. Question. When was the last time you saw that blouse on your sister? Answer. About a month before she disappeared. Question. Was it a loose fitting around the sleeves or was it tight? Answer. Tight elastic. Question. Short-sleeved or long-sleeved? Answer. Short-sleeved. Question. And since Donna's disappearance, have you done anything to locate this shirt? Answer. Yes. Question. What have you done? Answer. I looked through my clothes and I looked through hers and it is not there. Question. When you say you looked through her clothes, what did you do exactly? Answer. The day after she turned up missing and they weren't for sure what she had on and no one would, could recall the shirt, and I thought of it. And I went through her clothes the next day when I was putting away some of her stuff. So here they're, they're trying to establish what Denise was wearing, even though we don't know what she was wearing. Um, and, and actually what occurs to me just now for the first time as we're talking about this is... Why didn't they ask the Timmons brothers or Gene Welchel what she was wearing? I think that that would be much better than than having her sister go through her clothes. I mean, even in this description, you know, her sister says it's a it's a worn out, faded hand me down from her sister. Uh, for all we know, Denise has already gotten rid of it she's donated it or it just got so old or it ripped or or who knows or maybe that's not the case and maybe that's what she's wearing um but i don't necessarily think that this testimony from her sister uh shows that that is in fact what she was wearing right and it stands out to us and why we've even addressed it is because if we think about the confession tapes and we think about what was talked about in the confession tapes it's almost word for word of what was described as Denise wearing. This shirt with little flowers on it, with elastic short sleeves, with ruffles around the edge. And I think if our listeners go back and listen to that, um, the confessions episode that we did, when they talk about the blouse, the police are asking leading questions there um, and, and kind of suggesting these answers. And here in her sister's testimony, we see that Denise's sister went the next day. So I, I'm assuming that she took this information to the police the next day after Denise disappeared. So by the time that they were questioning Tommy and Carl, they already had in their head that this was what she was wearing. And then we, we see them asking these leading questions. And it's, again, one of these things that is so, um, we are making these leaps, you know? I think of, what if this old tattered shirt just went into the garbage six months earlier? What if it just finally lost all of its buttons and we're having this conversation at a preliminary hearing about a shirt that doesn't exist? You know, it's really these, these leaps that we have to make that saying, yes, her sister somehow knew exactly what happened to this shirt, you know, yeah. this old hand-me-down shirt. She knows, well, I don't see it, so therefore she must be wearing it. And I think that these are these, these huge leaps that, again, you had said maybe in a preliminary hearing is okay, but in a trial, they really aren't going to hold up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so that was really the extent of the testimony at the preliminary hearing for Denise's sister. And then finally now we're getting up to the witnesses who are going to talk about uh, Denise's disappearance. So next we have Karen Wise. And you'll recall Karen Wise 
is the clerk at JP's Pack and Go, which is a store that is pretty similar to McAnally's. It's uh, three-tenths of a mile east of McAnally's. And um, one thing it has that McAnally's doesn't is, like, some pool tables and, like, kind of more of a space for people to hang out there uh, and not just buy their things and leave. And so earlier that night... um, Karen Wise testifies uh, testifies about how earlier that night there had been two men at JP's um, on April 28, 1984, and that they had been acting suspiciously and that she became afraid. Uh, there was, you know, nothing specific that she could point to, uh, nothing that they had done that had seemed threatening, uh, just that they were acting suspicious and she had become afraid. She also testifies that while they were there, there was a pickup outside of J.P.'s and that the two men left around 8.30 and moments after they left, the pickup truck drove off. So she didn't even actually see them get into the truck, but she's making the assumption that is probably a pretty good assumption that she saw them leave shortly thereafter pickup truck drove off, so probably they got into that pickup truck. Um, Then she IDs Tommy Ward as one of the people who had been in JP's that night. She also states that the pickup truck that she saw drive off was mostly covered in red primer, but that also had some gray spots. Um, So that, that is a description that we'll come back to uh, once we get to some other witnesses. But that is, um, you know, that's that's the bulk of Karen Wise's testimony. And as we've discussed previously, pretty much the, the night of Denise's disappearance, a decision had been made that these men from JP's were somehow related to this disappearance, even though Nicole and I have have spoken at length on this podcast about the many reasons that we think that that was a huge leap that honestly might be part of the reason um, that they didn't find Denise. Yeah, again, you know, to revisit her in court, we're just reminded of the same thing, that we're back to having the testimony of a clerk that did not work at McAnally's, that worked down the street, talking about two men that were acting strange in the store, which happened to be the same night that Denise went missing. And she is, she does identify Tommy in the courtroom, but let's be also, she does not identify Carl Fontenot. She, you know, so again, there's another break in the story. So if it is um, Tommy that was there, but it wasn't Carl, then where are we now if that's the case? You know, it kind of just is this thing that can easily sort of spin out. But yeah, he does call her as a witness. She gives the same account of the story as she had given before. And, you know, it's it's a it's a blow for them, but it's one that I don't necessarily fully understand. And next, Bill Peterson calls Jack Paschal. And this is someone who is also at JP's on the night of April 28th, 1984. He got to JP's around 8 p.m. that night. And he says that he saw an older model gray primer Chevy truck uh, that had a problem with the tailgate. So even there, we're seeing a, a bit of discrepancies between his description of the truck and Karen Wise's description of the truck. And we know for a fact they're talking about the same truck because they're talking about being at the exact same location. This isn't like one person's talking about the truck at JP's and the other person is talking about the truck at McAnally's and we're assuming that they're the same truck. I mean, they're both talking about the truck that's parked outside of JP's. Anyhow, that's his description of the truck, uh, that it was an older model, gray primer, Chevy, that had a problem with the tailgate, Um, He couldn't really remember what the issue with the tailgate was, but that there was something wrong with it. He also witnessed the two two young men who were in JPs acting suspiciously, and he also identifies Tommy Ward as one of those two young men who were in JPs. And here, you know, I would just reiterate what you said, Nicole, that 
even if that was Tommy Ward at JP's, it's a leap to get from there to he's at McAnally's at 8.30. Yeah. And so then the next witness that Bill Peterson calls, to me, doesn't even make sense. Um, and, and I'll tell you about what this witness said, and then I think that uh, you will understand and either agree with me or disagree. Um, so the next person that he calls is Jim Moyer, and this is somebody who was at McAnally's. So not JP's, this person was at McAnally's at 7.30 p.m. on April 28th, 1984. So that's approximately one hour before Denise is missing. That's approximately one hour before the two suspicious gentlemen leave J.P.'s pack-and-go. And what Jim Moyer says is that he saw two men drive up to McAnally's in a truck... And he identifies Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot as the two men who drove up to McAnally's at 7.30 p.m. on the night of April 28th, 1984. So here we're seeing this new twist in the scenario. In the whole timeline. I mean, in the whole timeline. That one testimony blows apart the timeline that we've been using up until this case, up until this point. Well... And it seems like Bill Peterson is presenting it, but trying to pretend that it doesn't blow up the timeline, trying to, I don't know, pretend that this person was magically there at 8.30 instead of 7.30, but, like, left before Gene Welchel and the Timmons brothers arrived. But it still is an hour before Denise yeah. goes missing, and it's still an hour before Karen Wise, who they are basing their whole theory and who are the sketch, you know, the sketches were composed from her testimony. And she has set the timeline saying at 8.30 these individuals left, that they could be down at McAnally's very quickly, that that is when Denise goes missing. And now you're throwing in this random testimony from an individual who says, I was at the gas pumps at 7.30, and I saw both Ward and Fontado come in and pull up in a truck. Well, and not just that, but if we actually back up to Karen Wise's testimony, and I didn't include this, but Karen Wise says that these two men, one of whom she has identified as being Tommy Ward, arrived at JP's at 7 stayed for an hour and a half and were there until 8.30. And then you have the prosecution introducing a witness who says at 7.30, while Tommy Ward has been identified as being at J.P.'s pack-and-go, he's also been identified as being at McAnally's at the exact same time. It's mind-boggling. Is that That's all we can say about it. I mean, it just... I feel like I can, um, you know, I feel like this is, these are the things that come in for me that when we decided to do this case is like these pieces come together. I, I, well, have, they, they don't come together. Well, exactly. I have been clear that I am not a trained legal professional, but I don't think that you need to be one to see these pieces and say, what are we talking about? What are we doing? There are two people on the line here who are looking at the death penalty and we can't keep a timeline straight. That is problematic is not even the word that would describe that. Well, not even not keep the timeline straight. I mean, we know for a fact, no matter what, I mean, I'm sure that there are people out there who are listening who say that we're biased and I don't think I can disagree with them at this point. Uh, but biased or not, we know for a fact that at least one person here has misidentified Tommy Ward because there is no scientifically possible way that he is at both of those places at the exact same time. So we know that one of these identifications is wrong, if not both of them or all three of them. Yeah. Which it just, you know, like you said, it it boggles my mind, too, that this isn't somehow jumped on more and, and like, hey, 
some somebody's got this wrong. Like, are you telling me that Karen Wise is lying and that Jack Paschal, that both of them are lying about seeing Tommy Ward? Or are you lying to me about seeing him at 730? Because somebody is. Somebody doesn't have it right. And, and I don't honestly believe and that nobody... any of them are lying. I think they're mistaken. But they can't all be telling the truth. And nobody is identifying Carl Fontenot. I feel like much well, of the much of the we keep focusing on on Tommy Ward and who's identifying Tommy Ward, but it's you know the the first people don't even identify Carl Fontenot, you know, and so it's 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 confusing. <laughs> yes, it's confusing. <laughs> so anyhow, Jim Moyer also for some reason feels suspicious about these two gentlemen who are at McAnally's, who he is identifying as being Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot. So he goes out as he's leaving, and he takes a look at the license plate on this truck and decides he wants to write it down because he's suspicious of these two gentlemen. He gets to his truck, and he has no writing utensil. So he doesn't write it down, and then another car pulls into the into the um, parking area at McAnally's. And so he leaves. He decides there's another car there. Denise will be fine, even if these two guys are weird or shady or whatever it was that, that caused him to feel suspicious and concerned. He's done worrying about it because somebody else is there. And he doesn't write that plate down. He apparently doesn't remember any of it, even though he gave it a good look because he had intended to go write it down. And he leaves. And somebody else is already there. And that, and the thing that I keep coming back to when I think of this, too, is that at some, one of these points, these people are, you know, in and out of McAnally's, but something happened to Denise. So they are sort of... You know, if we could get the story straight, we could find out who was actually in the store with her. But instead, we have all of these sort of fits and starts of of who was there, who wasn't there, and feelings of suspiciousness, but not really being able to follow that up. And it just makes for this this case that we are getting further and further away from finding out who was actually in the store with her. Well, and then the, the thing that gets me, and, and maybe there is more information that we don't have access to, but I don't see anything where the police really tried to track down all of the people who were at McAnally's, right? Like, we have this witness saying, I saw two people from a truck, Tommy and Carl, supposedly, Walking into McAnally's at 7.30, I left when somebody else pulled up. Where is that somebody else? Mm -hmm. Why aren't they testifying? They must have been in the store and gotten an even better look at these two gentlemen that that, that is now being assumed are Tommy and Carl. Where is that person and why aren't they testifying? And what that brings me back to, which is what Jim Trainum said, and his why, again, why his interview was so helpful for this case, is that he mentioned when a confession tape comes, police work stops happening. That at that moment, when you get a confession tape, there is no longer detective, invest, you know, investigative work stops happening. And I wonder... When I see these holes or when I see these people that we don't hear from or all of these leads that could be followed, it brings me back to that these confession tapes, once they were in the hands of detectives and once they were able to move forward with it, all other work stopped happening. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have anything to add to that because at this point, I just feel... <laughs> I feel this case unraveling, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> I feel that the prosecution's case has become unraveled. Um, and maybe our listeners feel differently. Um, I don't know. We'd love to hear from you. We'll uh, go over more about what happened in this preliminary hearing and see if the judge agrees with us that this case became unraveled or if the judge thinks, hey, everything looks great. Or at least great enough to meet the burden of proof in a preliminary hearing. So next... Finally, after we've had, I think, about nine or 11 other witnesses, finally, we get to hear from the people who 
actually saw Denise when she was apparently being abducted. And when I say apparently, I don't mean that I don't think that she was abducted. I, I think in all likelihood, whoever she walked out with that night was taking her by force. Um, whether or not it was force that could be seen, you know, by somebody who was walking past her. Uh, I do, I believe the witnesses who say that she wouldn't have run off. I, you know, she was a newlywed. She was happy. She was working towards a goal. I think that something went seriously wrong that night. Um, but so now we're finally talking to the people who saw her when she was apparently being abducted. Um, and that is, as you'll recall, Lenny Timmons, David Timmons, and their uncle, Gene Welchel. And the three of them pulled up that night on April 28th, 1984, at about 8.30 at night to McAnally's in two separate cars. And at that time, initially, only one person got out of the car. Lenny Timmons got out of the car David Timmons and Gene Welchel both stayed in separate cars because they had pulled up in two cars. And the only other car in the parking lot at McAnally's at this time is the truck in question. And Lenny Timmons walks right by a man and a woman as he walks into the store. And when he testifies, he says that when they discovered that the clerk was missing, that's when he realized that it was, in fact, Denise Haraway who had gone missing. And it's our understanding that he was somewhat of a regular at JP's, and that's part of how he realized who it was. You know, we had a listener tweet us about, well, if they were regulars, like, why didn't they realize as she was walking out that it was Denise? And, and I don't have an answer for that. You know, my guess would be that maybe he realized that she looked familiar but didn't quite make the connection until later. Um, and he goes on to say that the couple leaving the store, he thought were a young couple. He thought that they were young lovers is what the language he used and that they were walking out in this fashion that just didn't send up any red flags. You don't, you know, when you walk into a store, you don't necessarily register who exactly is walking out, but you have a sense of them and that the sense of them was that this was this young couple walking out. Yeah, absolutely. And so all three of them testify, Lenny Timmons, David Timmons, and Gene Welchel. All three of them in their testimony um, say that they saw no other person in the store, around the store, or in the pickup truck. Mm -hmm. So they only saw one person, that one person who walked out with Denise. None of them saw any weapon... And all of them say that she appeared to be leaving voluntarily, that she did not cry out for help. And then, like Nicole said, Gene Welchel even said that he thought they were young lovers. Now, Lenny Timmons, he's the one who walked through the door right next to the two of them. He was within about two feet of the person who was with Denise and Denise. And... He's asked who, if he could identify who was with Denise Haraway as she walked out. And all three of them actually testify that it was someone who had a similar look or a similar type to Tommy Ward, but didn't say that it was, in fact, Tommy Ward. And then on cross-examination, Lenny Timmons is asked about what degree of certainty he has that this was Tommy Ward who walked past him. And Lenny says, on a scale of 1 to 10, about a 6. And that's it. And this is these are the only people who actually saw the person who, who walked out with Denise, who I can only assume, and I think most people would assume, is the person who in fact abducted her. And if we can put that scale or that level of certainty up against the individuals at JP's, we have two individuals at JP's who say, who pointed to Tommy Ward in the courtroom and said, 
that is who we saw at JP's that night. They were certain that that was Tommy Ward. And then we have the one person who actually saw Denise, who actually saw the individual leaving with her, and he is saying, on a scale of 1 to 10, I can only give about a 6. So that bit right there, we are taking more word from somebody at a different store at a different location and we're taking their identification and basing this off of what they have to say rather than off of the individual who actually saw Denise leaving. Yes, absolutely. And so I think these are the biggest pieces of testimony that come out. There's still some testimony after that. Monroe Atkinson, who you'll recall is the store manager of McAnally's, who was the one who actually cleaned up all of the evidence, and O.E. McAnally, the owner of McAnally's, they both testified, but their testimony consisted basically of saying that Denise was a good employee and that she had given no indication that she planned to leave. Now, as an attorney, if I were cross-examining them, I would have asked a lot more about the scene, at least from Monroe Atkinson. Granted, I think this early in the proceedings that the defense attorneys probably haven't had the opportunity to get much evidence or a report or a lot of the things that attorneys do have access to at the actual trial. Um, But I definitely would have cross-examined them a little bit more to try and find out more about the condition of that store. And hopefully that's something that we will see happen if there's an actual trial, because there's definitely a lot more that can come from these witnesses other than just that she was a good employee. And then next up, we have Sergeant Harvey Phillips, who was the police officer who was on the scene first. And he basically just talked about what he found, that there was no clerk there. Inside the purse was Denise Haraway's driver's license, her car keys. Her car was still at the store. And, you know, that was pretty much all that he testified to. Okay, so after this, there were still some witnesses. Um, They took a recess. And when they came back, Bill Peterson, the district attorney, had uh, just tons and tons of Denise's relatives that he wanted to put on the stand to testify that they had not seen her since April 28th, 1984. And this he wanted to use just to try and uh, strengthen this claim that something had in fact happened to her um, and to strengthen the certainty that she had died and wasn't still alive somewhere. Um, And to save some time in the hearing, uh, both sides agreed to accept the testimony of relatives that had been contained in depositions that were already done. So a deposition is where attorneys sit down and they ask someone a question and they write up the answers. And those are used to get an idea of what someone will testify to in court, uh, but they aren't court testimony. However, in this case, for the purpose of this preliminary hearing, both sides agreed that they would just put those those depositions into the record instead of having, you know, 20 or 30 of Denise's relatives come on the stand. That would take a lot a lot of time and also just be really emotionally tolling for all of these family members who um, you know, re- regardless of what happened, have lost are distraught. Absolutely, and we have to remember the preliminary has already been going on now for a few days. Mm-hmm. This is is anything that can kind of cut down on time here. Um, they agreed to do. So after this, then the judge grants another continuance at this point um, while they're going to get ready to move forward with more evidence in this preliminary hearing. And at that time, Tommy Ward tells his attorney that he wants to make a statement. Now, this is huge. Well, I'll just say, as an attorney, you want your client talking as little as possible. At least in my experience. You know, a lot of times... There are a lot of intricacies to the law and people might think that they're going to say something that will help their case and it's actually really, really detrimental. Um, And if something detrimental is going to happen, you as the attorney or I as the attorney 
want to know just so that I can kind of prepare and see, like, how can we mitigate the damage if this is going to be a damaging statement? So you're saying that as an attorney, if I'm your client and I have decided I want to make a statement during this preliminary hearing because something is on, I have to get off my chest. Obviously, ideally, I'm not going to make that statement at all. But if I do demand on making the statement, the best case scenario would be I've at least given you a heads up. You know what's coming out of my mouth. So you as my attorney are prepared for where we're going. Absolutely. Even if you as my client, you want to get up and say, you know, I have this alibi that I didn't tell anybody about because, you know, let's say Tommy says, you know, I was sleeping with this girl and I didn't want anybody to know because I got her pregnant and she's Catholic and her dad will kill me or right. who, you know, something like that. Something he, like a big piece Even, of missing information that is going to change the course of this trial. And, and even like a statement like that wouldn't hurt Tommy, right? Like that's a super helpful statement if that's what it was, which it isn't, but I'm just making an example. But even in that case, as an attorney, if my client was going to say that, I would want to know that ahead of time. I would want to find this girl and talk to her about it. I would want to find any of their friends who knew that they were a couple. I would want to have more evidence to to put on if my client were going to make that sort of a statement or any statement. So as an attorney, you really want to know what your client is going to say, but also you don't necessarily want your clients making statements. You want to just put the evidence out there and let to that show sort what of it's going to show. Itself, right. Um, but, but that, yeah. You definitely want to know what your client is going to say um, before they say it. And in this case, Tommy did exactly the opposite of that. He, he just kind of demands at this point. He demands to Tom to Don Wyatt that he has something to say. Don tries to talk him out of it and Tommy insists that he is going to make a statement to the court. And so if you want to know what that statement is, tune in next week. Thank you for listening to Unraveled, Season 1, The Nightmare in Ada. Your hosts are Nicole Richards and Caleb Aring. Producing, mixing, and editing done by Caleb Aring and Matt Van Horn. Music by Broke for Free. Voice talent by Joe Eager. Tune in next week to listen to more of this case unravel. <laughs>